This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. I have a special guest this week, Nick Smith. Nick, how are you doing today? Doing really well, Greg. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. We've actually met, well, we, we did not meet at one car event, and then we did meet at another car event, and I wanted to have you on to talk about your incredible Shelby Mustang, the 1965 Shelby GT350, which was the very first one ever built. Isn't that correct? Yes, you are correct. It's uh, well, We may or may not get into this later on, but there's an unusual story about the numbering of the car, but it is the very first Shelby GT350. Yeah, I do want to talk about that because that is interesting. And I tried to meet you at Road Atlanta when I was judging Mustangs at the Mustang Club of America show. And I heard that you were actually actually out on the racetrack having fun, not in that particular car, but in another car that you uh, had brought down there or up there for you. And then I was at Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals. And there you were in the car with the car again. And I was just blown away by the quality of the restoration, the history of the car. I'm a Mustang Shelby guy at heart, so you know that did not hurt things at all. And uh, I'm thrilled to have you on. So, if you would, could you just give us broad strokes about you know the serial number thing you mentioned earlier, but then just the history of the car? Of course, we have to put this in the perspective that back 60 years ago, or whatever it might have been in 1964 when it started, nobody anticipated that these cars were going to be of great value and that they were going to have a, such a lasting impact on the, the collector car market and the collector car hobby overall. So nobody really thought too much about the numbering sequence. Of course, this was Shelby's first venture into what they expected to become, and it did become a larger production vehicle than what they had done with the Cobra, which was more of a hand-built, a very low-production vehicle. So they ordered three uh, cars to be prepared uh, as prototypes because they had only a, a really rough template for what they were going to do with the cars. But they did know that they were going to build a street model and they were going to be uh, building uh, what became the R model, R for racing. So... The three cars arrived. The car that became 003 was numbered as the other two were with a magic marker on the firewall. And it was <laughs> real simply uh, written on in red magic marker 001. And the other two cars, which were to become uh, the racing prototypes, were 002 and 003. Okay. So far, so good. Yep. So they started to work right away on the street version because that was going to be the car that was going to be getting all the publicity. Uh, it was going to be the, it would become featured in all of the magazines when the press got word that Shelby was into this new venture 
which became the GT350. So they, every effort was put into getting uh, the first car ready, and so they could show it, uh, get photographs, start marketing the vehicle, etc. And the, the the R models, which they had a plan for that, which was to win B modified production, or excuse me, B production on the roadway circuit. They were certainly working very very expediently on developing those cars, but at it. Uh, in a different way, they they those that that they had to make those cars race really well. The first prototype street car, they needed to get that car to where it was ready to show the press as soon as possible because they wanted to get this car marketed and they wanted to get all the publicity from the magazines. Sure. Yep. Well, anyway, months later, as production started to that they actually started to get the assembly line up and running. I say the assembly line. It wasn't like Henry Ford built exactly. It was, you know, a very limited production, but it was, in effect, a small production line. So anyway, it was time to put an actual VIN plate on the cars. So Chuck Cantwell, who was the general manager of Shelby American, and saw oversaw the GT350 development program, uh, had the GT350 VIN plates made up, with at that time they were called uh, SFM, and that would stand for Shelby Ford Mustang, and then the year model, which was five, and then S, which was street, and then the numbers of the cars. Well, there was 001 and 002 and 003, and Cantwell handled those three VIN plates to one of the workers and said, uh, "These need to go out there and be riveted <laughs> onto the uh, the it would be the left front inner fender of the cars." Well, the, nobody thought there was much importance on which car got which number. Right. But the car that was originally 001 with a magic marker on it ended up getting the actual VIN plate, which was 003. So that's about as short as I can make that story. <laughs> no, that's, that's the great. true story, and uh, that's the way it all came down, and that's why 003 is the first Shelby Mustang GT350. Yeah, no, that's really, really great. And is this the one, now correct me if I'm wrong here, is this the one that was found in Mexico? No. Okay, no, it was not. This, actually, okay. actually <laughs> there were several found in Mexico because many of them found their way to the road racing circuit in Mexico, which the you know the, the South American, Central and South Americans and Mexicans were very, very big into road racing and very successful with it. At one point in their history, both the cars that became zero zero one and zero zero two did were found in Mexico. Okay, so that was zero zero one, zero zero two. What is the history of your car? I guess prior to it being restored, like as a known car, was it just you know a, a GT350 that people didn't know how special it was, or was it missing for a long time? It wasn't missing for a long time, but it again, we'll go, we'll go back to the premise that I mentioned a few moments ago. These cars weren't that famous then. Right. They were well-respected, but there was no worry about what number the cars were. Right, right. Uh, but specifically speaking of 003, uh, uh, 
every owner has been accounted for, and the car was basically. Uh, I think that I think that I am the fourteenth owner. I'd have to open my my one of the many books that Mark Hovander put together, and and I've added to. Yeah, I would say that the car basically was unrecognized as anything special other than it was a GT350 until Don Day bought the vehicle probably around 1970 and converted it to our model specifications. Mm, right. Raced the car very successfully for a long time. Don owned the car longer than anyone else. And I'm going to say that he raced that car for between 18 and 20 years with a lot of success, won a lot of races. And when he converted the car to our model specifications, he did so because he had apparently been told by whether it was a previous owner or other so-called authorities that it was originally an our model car and that someone else along the way had put the street uh, equipment on the car. Oh, I gotcha. Yep. As time went on, and the car got quite a bit of notoriety with Don's racing, and the people at Shelby got to know about it, everybody wanted to know more about the car. Right. So the the people in the know at at Shelby uh, started digging into the, all the details and the history of the car, and they had to get hold of Don Day and say, uh, Don, we've got good news and we've got bad news. <laughs> Right. <laughs> the good news is, Don, you've got the first GT350. Right. The bad news is, it is not an normal. <laughs> well, of course, Don, whether Don really knew or really wanted to know, I don't know because I never knew Don Day. Right. Yeah. But Don wasn't a happy camper. Right. Yeah. But, and I guess for a few years, Don was very angry with. Shelby American, and I guess that wore off after a period of time, and everything was okay. But he eventually did sell the car, and it went on to some additional owners. Uh, but it continued to stay in the R model configuration that it was in when Don owned it and reached the car. To continue on uh, into probably about, let me get my, I've owned the car now since, uh, 2018, uh, July of 2018. So Mark Hovander found out about the car probably in a in the late 1990s. He had already had a very nice and well, quite well-known street model, 65 car, uh, that he loved dearly. And a friend of his, liked his car, Hovander's car so much that Mark helped him find a car that turned out to be 003. Okay. Well, yep. his friend, uh, Hovander's friend, had probably got it to be a little bit more of a, I don't know whether it was more of an expense or, or just required more of his time and effort than what he was prepared to give the car. And Hovander, in the meantime, been, Mark Hovander is a really really great guy and I, I'm going to say that with some degree of accuracy that he has probably done more to unearth the history of the 
65 GT350 cars, not just 003, but all of the early 65 cars than anyone else, probably than any all the rest of the people that have done research put together. Oh, wow. And he's compiled yeah. so much data, so many, so many records, and, and interviewed everybody that's ever even thought about that car, <laughs> Shelby to the right. owners. He, he immersed himself in that car. So he was already, it, it, it got his teeth into this car while his friend still owned it. But it, it ended up that within a year or two, Mark purchased the car. And he loved the car so much, he drove it every day. Oh, wow. And, and it's our model configuration with all the, you know, the loud exhaust and the, 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 uh, the R model front fascia and the R model rear window with, with ventilation. <laughs> yeah, right, everything. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the lift up, lift up by the strap plexiglass side windows, et cetera, et cetera, and, and drove it for years and loved it, just loved the car and continued to research everything, every stinking thing about that car that right. you could research. I, yep. I, as we speak, I'm looking at about 13 three- or four-inch binders oh my full <laughs> of everything he compiled on that car. It's ups- I, 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 I kid about Ovander, and and if and I, if I could turn those binders and sell them by the pound, I would it would add to my value a little bit. Sure. Because yeah. He, he he just put so much together. But Mark was driving the car. He's from Seattle, by the way, and he was almost completely wiped out by a tractor trailer, an eighteen wheeler that lost its brakes uh, as Mark was stopped at a traffic light. And somehow the driver of the 18-wheeler was able to maneuver his truck at, at speed, probably what Mark estimated to be 50 miles an hour, missing 003 and Mark Hovander wow. by, literally by inches. Right, and, yep. and I Mark described that to me so vividly that I could almost feel that I was there. And he could never get that image out of his mind of that moment that it, that, that happened. And it caused him to completely rethink what he was doing with that car. I think there's no doubt that that occurrence eventually led him to sell the car to me. I gotcha. Yeah. Because I think truly, had that never happened, he loved that car and driving it so much, I don't think he would have ever let that car go. But once he realized he could not continue driving that car without fear of something like that happening to it and realizing by now realizing how important that car was right that yep. he, he just much more out of respect for that car and its history than for his own health or the life and then you know not that anybody's going to target you just because you drive a, G, a gt350 but you know it did strike fear into him for the car itself. Having to park the car changed everything. I do remember a really cool aspect of the car is if you look at the car, one side has the steel wheels, the other side has Kreger wheels. So it's got two different kinds of wheels on two different sides. Could you tell you know our audience a little bit about why that occurred? Well, that goes all the way back to when the car was being prepped for promotional photographs. 
and the marketing that Shelby was going full bore to accomplish. And we don't know for sure because it's doubtful that anybody other than Cantwell and Peter Brock and Shelby himself knew the absolute reasons behind it. Some people say that Shelby wanted everyone to think that he had more than one car <laughs> right? so that he had one set of wheels, which were the standard wheels, the standard steel wheels on the driver's side, and the Kragers, which were the optional wheels on the passenger side. Shelby's version of it was he wanted to be able to show people that both sets of wheels, that you can get the standard wheels on the car or you can get the craters. Right. Makes no right. difference. When when uh, Mark restored the car, he restored it to that period in time, which would have gone back to very late 1964, make that somewhere probably in no, mid-November through very early 1965 when the car was in that exact form and when all the promotional photographs were taken and they were taken at three different places they were taken uh, up in the, uh, one of the canyons uh, over, overlooking Los Angeles which was a beautiful setting with curving roads and a lot of trees and they did a whole series of photographs there then they took the car down to LAX and did a lot of photographs on the large expanse of runways at Los Angeles International Airport. And then they took the car back to Carter Avenue, which was out in front of Peter Brock's office, and did some of the final photographs there. Those were all of the publicity pictures. And then that car was used uh, during much of that same time and later on into the 1965 calendar year as the car that was went out to the magazines for their uh, introductory articles about that car about the new 1965 GT350. Yeah, so you've got a very historical piece there that it's really cool when you can link it to the original press releases and you know promotional brochures and advertisement and everything, correct? Absolutely. It was featured in Goodyear's uh, release of the Blue Street, or I should say the, uh, the Blue Dot power cushion tires which ironically were never on 003 until it was actually sold to the retail customer. But that's the photograph 003 for the Goodyear tire advertisement. Uh, it was in all of the original Shelby advertisements for the introduction of the 65 car. And then it was in probably a dozen of the uh, automotive magazines that were brought out in the spring of 1965. Right. Okay. That's really cool. Now, I know that you don't specialize just in Shelby's, but you also like some of the lightweight muscle cars of that era, don't you? Well, I'm an old drag racer, so <laughs> I'm getting into the Shelby deal at, for a couple of reasons. I've, I've always uh, loved the, the era of the, of the factory lightweight cars, the, the big factory drag racers from the, the, anywhere from the early 60s on through the mid to even into the late 60s. Uh, because that's when I did my drag racing, and I was never a big-name drag racer, but I did get a chance to run against some of the big guys and got to know <laughs> several of them quite well. And uh, so when I had an opportunity or when I had enough, I was fortunate enough to be able to get into the collecting of some of these cars, uh, 
that was the those were the cars I went after because I knew those cars. I right. even I even you know I the the farthest I got advanced in terms of the factory lightweights was the 1963 and a half uh, lightweight 427 Ford Galaxy with the fiberglass front end and the aluminum bumpers and the lightweight interior and uh, we had a lot of fun quite a bit of success with that car and we raced a lot of other cars and since my dad and uh, and then later myself were Ford dealers naturally most of our racing efforts was with Fords, but uh, having had to race against the Mopars and the Z11 Chevys and the Pontiacs that were in the early 60s so dominant, I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm not, I'm not just going to do Fords. I'm going to try to get the representative cars, the very, very best of those factory lightweights from Dodge and Plymouth and Chevrolet and Pontiac and Ford. Right. So, right. Most of my efforts for the last 20 years, up until a few years ago, were going in that direction. I kept noticing the ever-increasing value of the Shelby cars. Right, yeah. And, and of course, they were Fords. And a friend of mine who put me together with several of the lightweight cars that I purchased, he said, hey, I've got, I know this isn't your cup of tea, but I've got a 65 Shelby GT350. It's a really nice car. He said, I think you'd like it. I said, nah, I don't think so. And I said, well, but just out of curiosity, what, how much is that car? And he said, it's $100,000. Wow, yep. I had not been paying any attention to those cars. Uh, and I said, no, I'm not, a, no way, no way. Well, within two or three years, I happened to notice those cars had gone up to about $200,000. <laughs> right. And, and uh, I don't have to tell you the rest of the story. And... We, of course, know that 002, the so-called flying Mustang, has brought, with all the fees added to it, around $3 million here twice in the last, what, 18 months, I guess. The market has definitely changed, and uh, it, <laughs> all I can say is I'm sorry I didn't start getting into the Shelby business a little bit sooner. All right. Well, no, that's really great. I appreciate your time on this historic Shelby. I will. I would like to have you on again in the future, maybe to talk about lightweights a little bit more. One thing I do do at the end of this, and I, I hope I gave you a heads up, I think I did, is I play a little game called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I give you three cars, and you have to pick one to keep forever. You have to pick one to cash in, send it, you know, sell it. And then the third one, unfortunately, you have to pick it to send to the crusher. So I'm going to give you three cars. Are you ready? Well, you did not prepare me for this, but I'm going to take a shot. Oh, sorry Go about ahead. that. Well, yours is going to be easy. Yours is fun because I'm a huge Mustang fan. Now, I might be going a little bit deeper into the Mustangs than you're used to because I know you like other types of cars, but I'm excited about this. So I'm going to give you three Mustangs. Uh, the first one's a 1965 high-performance convertible, so that's the K-code convertible. The second car I'll give you is a 1968 Mustang Coupe but one of the 428 Cobra Jet Coupes, which they made about 2,200 of those. And the third one I'll give you is a 1971 Mustang Convertible, but what's special about this, it has the big 429 four-speed, and I think I only made like three of those. So those are your three cars, a 1965 Hypo Convertible, a 1968 428 Coupe, and then the 1971 429 Super Cobra Jet Convertible. So which one would you... Keep forever, which one would you cash in, and then, unfortunately, which one will you send to the crusher? Well, now, Greg, 
you know, I'm going to have to say that this is going to be personal <laughs> opinion. Okay, that's I, perfect. Do you, do you want me to separate this from my from my collector slash investment? Uh, <laughs> your, I uh, want position. the personal. I want the personal. Okay, yeah. I'm going to give you just because what I like. Well, I love the K code cars. Yeah. So if it was a poppy red with a pony interior 65 K code convertible or a double a triple black. 65k code convertible that's definitely the one i would keep forever okay yep okay now the the, the 68 cobra jet that's a pretty cool car i had one of the uh 135 cars that were the drag race specials that they built what how many did those they built 11 or so or, oh wait was, did you say convertible factory race team did you say you had one of the 428 no, the, convertibles uh, no, the, no, the 428 fastback drag cars. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, they I, made. The, they, yeah, the white the, one. The serialized, the serialized numbers were the one. I think 115. I said, were they 135s? Anyway, the serial number contained. I believe it was a 135 number in them. But I had one of those that was the one the Winter Nationals in '68. That uh, it was. They were great cars. So I, I do have an affinity for the, uh, for the Cobra Jet cars. So, uh, I think I would. I don't want to crush any of them, by the way. <laughs> That's right. Uh, be, Theoretically, but because of my <laughs> because of my lack of real specific knowledge about the '71 convertibles, even though they only made three of them, I'm and, and I, this is like I said from an investment standpoint, a very stupid decision. But I'm going to crush that one. <laughs> okay, no, and I'm going to cash in on the '68. Okay, <laughs> I probably should have said I crushed the '68 uh, 428 coupe uh, and keep the. Uh, and, and cash in on the uh, 671 convertible, but I get you know, I guess your first thought is supposed to be you're the most accurate one, so that's the way it goes down. Keep the 65 hypo K code, cash in on the 68 Cobra Jet, and crush the 71 convertible. All right, perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate your time joining us here on the Collector Car Podcast. Glad to do it. Hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.